morning. Thank you, Kelly. Wonderful job. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 11. Luke chapter number 11. Several years ago, Christian author Josh McDowell authored a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This book is about the historical evidences supporting the Christian faith. God does not ask us to accept the claims of Jesus without evidence. The Bible gives us overwhelming evidence that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. But the truth is that many of those who have chosen not to believe have done so not because they were unable to believe, but because they were unwilling to believe. Some of the individuals have not been willing to honestly consider the claims of Christ because they fear that they would be convinced and as a result would have to change their way of life. We have just that sort of case before us this morning, recorded in Luke chapter 11. It presses three relevant questions upon us. Those three questions are, first, is Jesus the Son of God, as he claims? Second, how do I know? And third, what must I do in the face of this evidence? First of all, I want you to look with me, is Jesus the Son of God, as he claims, as we begin reading in verse number 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. We're told that Jesus delivers a demon-possessed man. We're not told much about this poor man. None of the gospel authors... Matthew and Mark also record this story. None of them tell us his name, where he came from, or how long he had been tormented. All we know is that a certain man was demon-possessed and that this demon caused this man to be unable to speak. The Jews also had their exorcist who sought to cast out demons. But they believed that The victims had to be able to tell and reveal the name of that demon or they had no authority to cast it out. According to the thinking of that day, what Jesus had done was impossible because the demon's name had not been revealed because the man was mute. Jesus healed this man and he immediately spoke. This miraculous cure was met with several different responses. First of all, there was amazement on the part of the people. We are told that the multitude, the crowd, marveled. They were amazed and they began to wonder who this Jesus was. They were amazed by the deliverance of this demon-possessed man. But the religious leaders had a different reaction. They accused Jesus. Religious leaders present what they thought was their answer. They could not deny that an incredible miracle had transpired. A miracle that required explanation and interpretation. 
And since they could not deny the power of that miracle, since the man had been delivered, they questioned the source of that power. The parallel account in Mark chapter 3 tells us the accusations came from the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem. The scribes had at least two accusations. First of all, they say that he, that is Jesus, is possessed, possessed by the spirit of Beelzebub. The identity of Beelzebub is found in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 1. The name meant the Lord of the flies or Lord of the filth. It came to be another name for Satan. But I agree with Kent Hughes when he says in his discussion of this passage that it is a fitting name for Satan, but a monstrous slander when used for Jesus. It was a calculated blasphemy of immense perversity. Secondly, in verse 15, they take that reasoning one step further, saying that he is, he is possessed, but he is also empowered by Satan. But some of them say he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. By saying this, they were ascribing the gracious work and miracles of God to Satan. Scripture clearly teaches that Satan is a real spiritual being, but not, not just an import, impersonal force of evil at work in the universe. The Bible reveals he was an angel who was created by God but rebelled against God and he and a host of other angels were cast out of heaven. These other evil spirits are called demons because they also rebelled against God. Now I want to just stop for just a moment and explain something because Matthew and Mark in their accounts record that Jesus called this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, we find these words. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There is not time in this message to examine that extensively. That is the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. I've done so in other sermons, and I will direct you to them if that is a concern of yours. But I want to say that there are thousands of people who are terrified that they have committed the unpardonable sin. This is a shame, first of all, because Jesus would not have you to live in fear. And secondly, because the mere fact that you are troubled by that is proof that you're ready to repent. And that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is still working in your life. I think part of the problem is that many believe this sin... Is some mysterious sin that one can secretly or ignorantly commit. So I'll just touch on a few of the most obvious things for just a moment about this unpardonable or unforgivable sin. It is not the same thing as the sin unto death, which is found in 1 John 5, 
16. The sin unto death is the climax of a Christian repeatedly resisting the convicting, chastening, and correction of the Lord. The unpardonable sin leads to spiritual death, and the sin unto death leads to physical death. Neither is the unforgivable sin denying Christ, for there are examples of those, specifically Peter, who have done so and have been forgiven. The unforgivable sin, neither is it suicide. The Catholic Church holds this view because they believe this individual dies without the capability of confessing and asking for forgiveness, assuming that they were in a rational state of mind at all to begin with. But that would mean that every person who dies of a drug overdose or dies as a drunk driver, would also perish without forgiveness. What a wonderful forgiveness Jesus offers to us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The point is there is no sin that God is unwilling to forgive. The problem is there is a point in time when we are no longer willing to ask. The unpardonable sin, then very simply, is the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fact that Jesus is our Savior. Now there's one more point about their reactions to Jesus. Returning to our text, verse number 16. Some others, whether this is some of the crowd or some of the religious leaders, we do not know which, do not want to make a decision for Jesus. They prefer to sit on the fence and try to take a position of neutrality. Verse 16 says, others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Perhaps like some today, they thought of themselves as being open-minded, willing to be convinced if there was enough evidence enough proof to be presented, but they felt they needed more proof and they therefore requested some kind of cosmic sign from heaven. Don't miss the irony here. Some of them have said that he performed these miracles through the power of Satan and they followed this up by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. The second thing that we're gonna look at today is how do I know he is who he, say he, who he says he is. Jesus answered the arguments, got himself in three arguments. First of all, he says their argument is illogical. Verse 17 and 18, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and the house divided against the house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus sets forth for them just how illogical their accusation is. If a kingdom is divided against itself, we call that a civil war. And any nation that lingers in that position for very long will not last. He says, if a house is divided against itself, then there is internal division, and it will tear a family apart. 
If Satan is divided against himself, he's going to be defeated. If Satan's goal is to destroy and Jesus is reversing that destruction by healing, then how can he be in service of Satan? By saying it is illogical to say that Satan is casting out demons by the power of Satan, is saying what man in his right mind would willingly and knowingly shoot himself in the foot. It is absurd to attribute the casting out of a demon to the chief of all demons, Satan. So what would he have to gain by such a move? Also, he says that their accusation is inconsistent in verse 19. If I, by Satan, cast out demons, as you claim, by whom do your sons cast them out? So Jewish contemporaries of Jesus also performed exorcisms. And most people believe they did it by the power of God. Were these men then also empowered by Satan? Was everyone who cast out demons in league with the devil? No, of course not. Then if the, if the miracle is not performed by the dark forces, it must have been from the power of God. Their failure here is a failure to accept the evidence. <clears throat> if Jesus wasn't of Satan, then there's one, only one other alternative that remains. He must be of God. In verse 20, Jesus says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God harkens back to the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 19, where Pharaoh's magicians finally saw that it was God's power that was working through Moses. Logic would demand that these religious leaders acknowledge that Jesus was God or that his power was God's power. And yet in the face of all the evidence, they refused. But if they acknowledge that Jesus is working his miracles through the power of God, then they're going to be obligated to follow him also. Moreover, he says in verse 21 and 22, in order to be able to deliver men and women from demon possession, Jesus had to be stronger or greater than Satan. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He literally says the strong man, definite article. He's referring to a specific strong man, and that specific strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdom which he dominates here on earth. His possessions are the helpless victims that he holds in hostage and bondage. And the only one who is stronger than Satan can free those who are held in bondage. And this is what Jesus has done and is doing, entering into Satan's dominion, binding him, and freeing his helpless victims. He is merely, Jesus is not stealing from Satan. 
He is only reclaiming what Satan has stolen in the first place. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The good news for believers is that Satan is like a dog on a restraint. Have you ever walked past someone's property and all of a sudden a dog springs out of nowhere barking and growling and running at you at full speed? You are certain this is your last moment on earth. And then he, ends the, he hits the end of the leech. You're so thankful. Well, that's what Satan does. He hits the end of his leash. Paul explained in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 that this is the condition of Satan. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Third and finally, what must I do then in the face of this evidence that a man is found in verse 23, the evidence does demand a choice because in verse 23, Jesus tells us that not only are those who are being negative and rejecting Jesus, are they guilty of rejecting him, but all those who thought they were just being neutral are rejecting him. He says, "Who he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Some have said that this is one of the most narrow-minded statements that Jesus ever made. And I presume that that is true in our pluralistic, all roads lead to heaven society. It does sound rather intolerant, but that doesn't keep it from being true. Jesus says that you cannot straddle a fence when it comes to him. Every individual is either trusting him or rejecting him. The one thing that you cannot do is ignore him. The actions of both the religious leaders and some of the people was to try to straddle the fence. Inhabit a non-existent spiritual neutral ground and not make any decision about Jesus. It's based on the thought that there is some safe middle ground, but there isn't. The truth is that it is impossible to be neutral in this spiritual war. There are two spiritual forces at work in this world, and we must choose between them. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. There are two sides and only two sides, God's side and Satan's side. There is no other side. Neutrality means that we are standing against him. We are either for him or we are against him. We either gather in or we scatter abroad. We either do good or we do harm to his cause. Standing still is not possible. 
For standing still is doing nothing for God. Standing still, attempting to be neutral, is actually working for evil by allowing evil to continue and to grow without opposition. And then Jesus talks about the danger. The danger of neutrality. In verse 24, by telling the story of a man and the demon. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he found it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. The statement here is that it is not enough merely to clean up your behavior. Self-reformation without regeneration is not only worthless, it's dangerous. If a man or a woman is empty and without God, then a vacuum exists in their soul and that vacuum will be filled by something. During the infamous O.J. Simpson trial, Johnny Cochran, one of the lawyers for the defense, brought the jury to a crisis moment, a crisis moment of decision when he said, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Jesus likewise brings us to a crisis moment of decision. When he says in verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And later in verse 23, he says, he who is not with me is against me. William Barclay puts it this way. Either what Jesus said about himself is false, in which case he is guilty of blasphemy as no man ever dared to utter, or what he said about himself is true, in which case he is what he claimed to be and can be described in no other terms than the Son of God. Jesus leaves us with the definite choice. We must accept him fully or we must reject him absolutely. That is precisely what every person has to decide for or against Jesus Christ. The evidence has been presented. Jesus has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. He's caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear. Don't, under, don't misunderstand me though. <clears throat> Jesus is not on trial here. But eternity is at stake. Perhaps the most important question that Jesus ever asked was the question that he once asked Peter. And it was, who do you say that I am? The entire Christian faith, all of its claims, all of its promises hang on the witnessed historically verifiable event, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 3, verse 18, who, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the Bible that you do not ask us to believe in Jesus without evidence. That you've given us enough evidence for any fair man or woman to come to know that Jesus is who he says he is. And that we're not given the opportunity to try to just stay neutral. We are either for Jesus or we're against Jesus. We are either with him or we are against him. Father, I pray you speak to everyone's heart this morning. Maybe there's someone here today that has never really made a decision, never really stopped and recognized that they're a sinner. They can't save themselves, that their sin separates them between, between themselves and the holy God, but that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and then went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, not his sin, but our sin. And all we must do is accept that payment that he has already made. If there's one here today that has not done so already, I pray that you'd help them right now in the quietness of this place to make that decision. There may be others here who are struggling with all kinds of different things. Some are struggling with emotional struggles and family relationships. and Others are struggling with health problems. And Lord, we pray that you would touch them this morning. Help them to feel your presence and to know that you're their loving heavenly father and that you're concerned about everything that concerns them. I pray that they'd be able to turn those concerns over you today. Father, we just pray in this time that you'd work your way and will in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.